0: Hi, everyone. My name is Kara Orbell, and today I have a very special guest on Going Places. I'm interviewing Jennifer Fraser, who is an author, educator, consultant, harnessing mental health and brain power to improve performance. A lot of her study and work is with athletes who face trauma, people who face trauma and bullying, and she's a wonderful person. So thanks for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Kara.
0: Yeah, I'm very excited for this show. Um, Jennifer has two books already and she's in the process of writing two books right now. So how is that going?
1: Well, it's funny, you know, when you're a writer, it's it's hard for you to be in real life because you your book is so much a part of what's in your head that you sort of feel like, "Oh my goodness, real life is like knocking on my door again. What is that?" So it's I love being in the world of writing and research and that kind of thing. But um, it is a bit tricky to juggle multiple books at once.
0: Yeah. So her two books are called 10 fixes. This is her new books. They're called 10 fixes for the broken brain, and then brain drain, the loss of adolescent brain in the workplace. So I'm super excited to talk about both of those. And Jen and I, Jennifer, and I actually met when I was in high school, and I had an abusive coach, and it was a very hard experience, but Jennifer provided a ton of insight, and she was very positive. And she's just a very informative person on that subject, so... Thank you for helping me
1: and for all the other athletes that you've helped. Well, it's, I'm really glad you actually brought that up, Kara, because I really vividly remember our conversation. And I remember that some of the abusive messaging to you was that you were mentally weak. And I was really struck by that when I talked to you, because I could tell in talking to you that you were actually an incredibly mentally strong person. And this is why the coaching was really getting to you, because you you, you were aware on a deep level that it was not true what was being said. It was unfair and it was really hindering you as an athlete. So really what you and I are going to talk about today is exactly that. The ability we have to harness our own brain power in order to um, be successful, in order to heal from things that have hurt us. It's, it's the neuroscience out there right now is so exciting in terms of what we can do ourselves just to be stronger, healthier, happier, and, and kinder and better to others.
0: That's great. That's amazing. And I completely agree. I mean, now that you said that my brain blew, I was like, I can't, I completely forgot about that. But it's just crazy how, I don't know, how abusive coaching can lead you down such a bad hole. But I feel like I've done a really good job of healing from it through it's taken years. But I mean, you can do it. And it's important. So let's talk about Let's talk about that now. I mean, have there been any breakthroughs in abusive coaching and, in just healing from the trauma that athletes face?
1: I, I find it really interesting because I think right now there's been a ton of research done in the past. So there were, there's absolute leaders in the field like Dr. Alan Goldberg, um, Dr. Ashley Sterling, Dr. Gretchen Kerr. There are these, you know, Dr. Brian Geerty. These are the really heavy hitters in the world of sport and abuse and how coaching can make or break an athlete. And there's still so much research being produced in a really high quality and exciting way. And I think it's very much on people's radars. And what what's sad about it is, and, and what's hard for coaches, I think, is that if you are trained in a in what um, bullying expert Paul Pelletier calls a control and command model, mm-hmm. if you've been trained that way, you, you've just taken the messaging in. You believe it. You think it's true. You think you're doing um, really important work with your athletes and you don't know. It's your normal. It's how your brain is structured. So you really don't, I I think, fully understand how much you're hurting people. Definitely. That's a
0: huge breakthrough. I mean, I told you before, I just started being a coach when I went to college and I would end up at tournaments where every coach around me just seemed like they were in such a terrible mood. And they were just like, they create, they added such a negative energy to their teams. And I would be like, girls, like, don't, don't like admire that. That's a terrible way. Like I totally tried to just be the opposite of every negative aspect I lived through and saw. And I think that's so important.
1: Well, what's, what's critical too, and the, tr- the work that I try and do, is really help people um, tap into the research. So you yourself just know as a person, you come from a family probably, you have probably had exceptional coaching in the past, that when you got a really negative coach, you started to say to yourself, this isn't normal, this isn't okay, this doesn't make me perform better, and this is actually hurting me. Like I can feel and tell that this is incredibly harmful. But if you'd come from a family where that was the parental approach, that it was really disciplinary and really strict and didn't listen to you. And there was no kindness and no empathy. And you as a child were constantly like put down, you would have just thought, Oh, the coach is trying to get the best out of me. He cares about me or she cares about me. Just like my parents do. You just don't know any better. But what's fascinating now is the research is very clear because neuroscience is able to look at brain scans. So we can say for as much as we want, we can say, hey, being really demeaning, putting kids down, telling them things like, you're not mentally strong, that's gonna make them rise up and be better. Well, the neuroscientists go, uh, I wish that were true, but when I look at these brain scans, I actually see a lot of harm being done to this young person's brain. They mm-hmm. can see it now, it's evidence. We Just like we can understand that concussions actually do serious damage to brains, Same thing with verbal abuse, negative negative treatment of athletes, negative atmosphere, toxic atmospheres, um, psychological abuse, all of that, even though it's not touching the body, it doesn't touch the brain, it's actually doing incredibly serious damage. And I just want to get that word out. I want all young people, all coaches, all parents, I just want them to know this is what we see on the brain scans. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: how did you get into it? Let's talk about your background. What made you interested and begin
1: your journey into mental health and this field? Well, I mean, it's a great question because I'm not a mental health professional. I was never, I wasn't drawn to that as a career. I was an academic and I constantly worked with literature, but I did my PhD in comparative literature. And when you do that type of work, your training is to take different kinds of discourses or ways of thinking and put them into dialogue and see if something changes in the way that we understand ourselves and our world by combining things. So in my first book, I combined social anthropology, I looked at literature and I looked at mentoring and I put it all together. In my second book, I looked at pedagogy, how we raise children, the psychology of it. How does it change? I looked at grief studies and then I looked at war. So it was a mix of history, literature, theory, these kinds of things and then so when it came to neuroscience and how it became a part of my fascination and the type of work that i produce now i i have two sons and my second son was eight years old and he was really um doing some odd things at school he was this incredibly articulate child and he could tell you all about greek mythology and he could read the book out loud no problem in class but then he would have a test on the little kid's book that he'd read And instead of being able to answer very basic questions about the character and the story and whatever, he would make up completely elaborate answers that had nothing to do with the book. So the teacher said, you really should get him tested by an educational psychologist. We're like, okay, I was a teacher myself. I was working in a university prep school, was totally used to this type of thinking. We took him in. Well, the report came back that he had less than 1% chance to retain any visual information and we were shocked because i mean our school system is constructed on visual information it's what's privileged if you can't read if you can't read the newspaper or read imagery or whatever you can't read social media you are cut off so we put him into a, a really innovative school called eaton aerosmith school and um it's it's developed by these two brilliant educators and one of them is barbara aerosmith and there's a she's written a book called the woman that changed her brain And she's written about by incredible neuroscience uh, figures in our world, like Dr. Norman Doidge. And he talks about her work and her path as an educator and this school that she's developed. And she works with Howard Eaton, who's an equally amazing individual. But um, so this was, for me, it just opened a door as a teacher because teachers, a lot of us, well, I don't have teacher training, but in teacher training, traditionally, you're, you're, trained to think that what you do is you pour knowledge into children's brains, right? You Mm -hmm. teach them all this information, you teach them how to do things, and then they produce and they show you, hey, I learned, I know how to do this. But in a neuroscientific model, so Eaton Aerosmith School where my son was, Really what they're trying to do is strengthen a cognitive deficit. So he had a deficit in visual processing, but he had—he was off the charts, which is typical for a so-called learning disability or exceptionality. He was off the charts for auditory. This is why he was so brilliant at Greek mythology, but he couldn't do a grade three book because the Greek oh. mythology was read to him. I used to read it to him when he was going to sleep. So he could process. So oh. after four years, he completely changed his brain, or even Aerosmith did. Oh. did. He no longer had a learning disability. He no longer had a visual cognitive deficit. Mm-hmm. If, if you could see him right now, he is, he reads hundreds of books, reads them. He doesn't listen to them. He reads them hundreds of books, total like photographic memory all the time. That's what he does. He wants to become a writer. So that was my introduction to we can change our brains. Our brains are not these static things. They're not hardwired like computers and we're born with them and then we have to do our best. That's not true. Our brains are incredibly able to change and develop, and this was the second part of how did I get so engaged in this, and this is what led me to be working with you when you yeah. were being used by your coach. Um, my older son was uh, 16, and ultimately another child reported it. but. There was abusive coaching happening by two teachers in a basketball program, and there was a, a ton of verbal abuse, and in our son's case, there was also physical abuse, and this is what set me on the path of, oh my goodness, how is it possible that there's, these were high school teachers, how is it possible that high school teachers are treating students this way, and the system completely protected them? They, they You can't imagine the elaborate dance that went on to ensure that these teachers did not be held accountable publicly in fact everybody bent over backwards to ensure that they were protected and the children who reported them and there was upwards of like i don't know 14 15 kids reported them they were they were re-victimized so what i learned when i started to study this phenomenon this is a very typical pattern and it's why i'm really interested in changing the way we understand bullying because if we took a neuroscientific point of view on it we would understand just a second the coaches aren't let's not use any moral terms they're not bad people they're not evil people these are very old-fashioned terms that don't speak to the brain what they are is people that have had their brains programmed to believe that this type of treatment is going to relieve them of their own psychological distress or it's going to help athletes whatever it is they believe that's how their brain got shaped and we can change the shape of their brains once we hold them accountable, we say, okay, you're really hurt or just like you would say to someone with a drug abuse problem, you've got a drug abuse problem or you're an alcoholic, we can get you help. We can yeah. change the way you behave. We can make you better. It's going to take some time. It's going to be super hard, but we care about you and you're not a bad person, but my goodness, your brain has really gotten, you know, something's really being done to it. We've got to get yeah. you better. And on the flip side, we go to the victims and we're like, "Whoa, just got you away in the nick of time because your brain was getting shaped in a really destructive way." Yeah. And we got to stop that. We got to heal you and get you better. Can you imagine what our society would be like if we stopped the moral, you know, um, condemning of people and we started to treat it like a health issue, like a mental health wow. issue?
0: That's fascinating stuff. And I love how you combine neuroscience with ethics and teaching and pedagogy and everything. And I think it all is so interrelated and I never really considered that. So that's a really good point. I'm just looking at it. Wow.
1: Well, there's some really brilliant minds out there like um, Dr. Uh, Daniel Amen. And he talks about how we really are going to change the world when we stop treating destructive behavior as a moral issue. and We start treating it as a medical issue. As soon okay. as we start doing that, You know, we are going to change how people interact. We're gonna change, you know, ethics, as you say, or our justice system. We're gonna change our jail system. I mean, everything can change once we, you know, shift. And so I refer to this as we need to leave the bullying. We need to exit the bullying and abuse paradigm. It's an outdated, broken system. It doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. Once we leave that sort of scientific framework, which has not served us well, and we enter into the new neuro paradigm or a neuroscience informed way of doing things, we're going to be a lot healthier and happier and whole.
0: Yeah, definitely. Wow. So how have people tried to leave this paradigm? Like what is your goal, I guess, for the future of children growing up in
1: sports? Well, I mean, one of the things that I do, so I just was asked, I'm really pleased because I really highly respect this group. The National Alliance of Youth Sports, um, I, they brought me in to give a keynote address in Orlando like three or four years ago. And so I talked to the, about 250 heads of sport organizations across the U.S. Wow. And um, they were really worried, the organizers, um, they're just fabulous people, and they were really worried that I was going to talk about neuroscience. And they were saying, nobody understands neuroscience. No one wants to know about this. Yeah. It's too much. And I just said to them, just trust me, I can promise you they're going to be excited. So the first thing I said to this group of sport heads was, raise your hand high if you can name five parts of the body and what it's essentially involved in. What does it do? Every single hand in the room went up. And then I said, okay, perfect. Now, raise your hand high if you can tell me five parts of the brain and its essential function. Like, what is it involved in in the brain? What does it do? And all of a sudden there was this kind of like pause. Everybody was a little bit like, "Mm." no (laughs) hands went up. And I said to them, you know what? How is it possible that we as children grew up, we've become adults. You're running these sport organizations, but nobody's really taught us much about our brains. And it's, it's a classic human phenomenon because... We're really engaged in things we can see. We can see our body. We can see when our body's hurt. Like if you if you're bleeding, I'm gonna to totally react to that. But if you were looking at me as you are right now and your brain was hurt, I couldn't see it. So I wouldn't be I wouldn't be saying, Carol, we've got to get you help. I'm gonna call 911. This is an emergency, you're in danger, you've had a concussion, or you've been verbally abused. That is the kind of panic we should have that 's the empathy we should offer, and we should respond with compassion, but as many young people know and adults know when you have a when your brain's being hurt by a toxic environment or a psychological abuser or a concussion, and no one can see it, people don 't know how to respond they don 't know how to get you help and you don 't know how to get help for yourself because yeah. your society does not tell you you 're in danger you 've been hurt, we need to set you on a healing path so I, I just think there's a huge amount of room for change in how we do this. And so, yeah. you know, I'm trying with my books. I try with my interviews and articles, and I just keep trying to sort of beat the drum and get the information out there because yeah. it's critically important information.
0: Definitely. So what is your topic for the next seminar with the National Alliance of Youth Sports? Cause I know the title is called transform bullying into neuroscience. So are you going one step further with that?
1: Yeah. What I've done is I've developed a system. So transform bullying with neuroscience is actually the name of an online course I've developed. Mm -hmm. And, um, so any, anybody who's interested can go and check it out. And I'm dying to talk to you about it. Keen to hear feedback, reach out to me because I, you know, I'm doing this myself. I'm trying to translate the knowledge, be an educator, teach people about it. Um, But I really believe it's going to take group effort. Like we need big numbers. We need a a total swell and a wave of people that commit. And I personally believe it's young people that are going to create that wave. They're the ones that are going to you know lead the charge into the future but um so with national alliance of youth sports they've asked me to do two different presentations so presentation number one i'm going to talk to the heads of sport organizations and coaches about what do the neuroscientists see on brain scans when somebody is being uh, psychologically or verbally or emotionally abused? They're not being touched, but what is happening to their brain when they're being socially ostracized or they're not getting feedback or the person's yelling in their face or swearing at them or putting them down yeah. or creating a really toxic environment around them? What is What happens in the brain? Because they really do study this a lot right now. Mm. So first, we're gonna talk about that. Then in the second half, we're gonna talk about, okay, so we know some pretty scary information right now we might have been raised in a system that normalized this kind of treatment. We might be a coach who thinks that this gets results and we've actually gotten paid a huge amount of money doing this kind of thing. Like, you know, you look at some of the great coaches out there that have been, you know, that have lost their jobs and they've been publicly shamed. And, you know, once you cross that line, it's amazing how you get treated in in the media and so on. And anyways, it's a, it's a pretty awful scenario. So what do we do with that? And so I've put together an eight part program um i call it the r8 system and i it's grounded in neuroscientific research and it basically lays out okay we've got this problem how can we fix it how can we do things differently how can we handle athletes report of abuse differently what do we need to know about how our brain's going to react when we get these reports because what happens is inevitably you get triggered and other things happen like you're not an evil person an administrator sitting there saying i'm going to let athletes be abused nobody goes to work and says that yeah. But if you are an, administer, an administrator in a sport organization mm-hmm. and you get a report of an abuse being done by one of your coaches that you know and respect and you can't believe it's true, your brain starts to not process the information properly. Yeah, so You're bad. It's because your brain's a sequential processor. So it says to you, just a second, I know the coach is a good person. I've seen him. He's been over for mm-hmm. dinner. He's actually my friend. I know his wife. His kids are great. There's no way he could next sequence be an, a person that's hurting athletes i, I my brain just imploded <laughs> i can't
0: cognitive dissonance isn't that what it's called <laughs> ah totally just...
1: cognitive dissonance right this is that's what only <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens so then and this is really fascinating i personally think this is so interesting and i think every single person listening can relate to this so what then happens i believe Is, and I take this from the work of Dr. Sean Aker, who's a positive psychology guru. Everything is grounded in neuroscience. Mm. He's okay. I take it from his work. He says, What happens is you start to produce counterfacts. So your brain can't cope with the cognitive dissonance, and our brains really like things to be organized and clear and straightforward. They don't like a big mess, they don't like dissonance. They want harmony and organization. So Mm -hmm. they want things balanced. So what does your brain do? It says, Hmm, those athletes were exaggerating. And then it says, oh, just a second. I think those athletes are too sensitive. That's why there's a problem. It's not that the coach is a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and he has two different personas or she has two different personas, one behind the closed doors of practices where they let loose a volley of like really negative energy with their athletes. And that person goes away when they're with adults. And when there's no longer a power imbalance, they're charming, they're charismatic, they're lovely. So the, the brain starts to come up essentially with all kinds of excuses. We all know this pattern well in sex abuse scenarios where the judge says, oh, just a second, this man who's married and he's a Christian, there's no way he could have raped you. You must've been wearing inappropriate clothes. Phew, cognitive dissonance solved. You must've been in in a bar, which was not a good place to be. I guess it really was your fault. You know, this is what our brains do. And I mean, yeah. when you take a step back from it, it seems crazy, but when you're actually in the midst of it, we all do it. And yeah. it's how we cope with things that are that are part of our lives.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. And just, I feel like I've had those conversations before where if I mentioned that I've had an abusive coach, first of all, I've had... I've had two. And I had the ignorant one who ignored me and sat me on the bench and didn't tell me why. And then I had the other one who basically told me that I wasn't mentally tough, that I could never play in college. And then I've also had four concussions, which I don't know if I told you or not. So I basically check off all the boxes. But it's so interesting to like to hear it because once you verbalize just the types of responses people have to it, it's it's terrible, but it's fascinating how the brain reacts to negative feelings of your peers and friends.
1: Well, I just would like to go back to your description there, because if you have a coach who's ignoring you, that on the, on a brain scan is arguably one of the most harmful. If you went and hit your face, your brain wouldn't register it as nearly as dangerous and as stress reactive as being ignored being ignored is a very purposeful act it's an incredibly harmful act and my guess is and um it's important i mean i think it's really important for athletes to hear this message if you look at the research athletes who are targeted by destructive coaches or abusive coaches are oftentimes the most talented athlete so they go after athletes that threaten their own power and their own control, and their own command. They don't like very, very innovative, creative athletes that go the extra mile that are just kind of in flow states, like Csikszentmihalyi in flow states. They don't like that. That intimidates them. They like to control what the athletes are doing, when they're doing it, because it's feeding their ego. And their ego has being hurt in some way. And I'm not making an excuse for it because I am a believer in destructive abusive coaching has to be stopped. I don't, I think it's the most unhealthy thing in the world, but I'm, I just, they're not monsters. They're very, very hurt. People has to be stopped, but they didn't, they came by it. Honestly, it's from their own past. They're very threatened, insecure people. So first of all, the coach that ignored you probably did as much if not worse damage than the coach that verbally abused you because the verbal abuse at least it was engaging with you whereas when the brain is being ignored because of you know our brains are quite um, they're slow to change in a strange way it's like they're these yeah. incredibly brilliant things you know it's like only a brain could come up with like a poem or the internet yeah. or a symphony right like the yeah. brain I mean the brain is pretty impressive on the flip side the brain is still very um, it believes you're on the Serengeti. It thinks there's a predator. And so it interprets you out wandering around with no powerful adult paying attention to you as you being in a lot of danger. It's like, whoa, well, you're by yourself in the desert. There could be a pterodactyl or maybe a saber toothed tiger. I got to save her. The way I'm going to save her is turn her into freeze. I'm going to paralyze her so she can't even move or function because then the predators won't see her. Oh, that's not going to work. I'm going to turn her into escape flight. Oh, she's going to run away super fast. I'm going to pump up the cortisol. I'm going to give her a shot of adrenaline. So you're sitting there on the bench and your brain's going crazy and it's pumping up all this corrosive stress hormones and you've got nowhere to go the brain doesn't understand this is a 21st century coaching problem in volleyball you know yeah definitely. it's like one of those you know yeah. really not good for your brain to have constant baths of cortisol it's really bad for your brain wow that's very interesting and i feel
0: like i like when i went through that i kept getting triggered from the past events when i had the ignorant coach and So it was an interesting feeling because I definitely had that and I had the panic attacks and I wasn't sure where it was coming from. I was like, what's going on? So it's, it's just fascinating how the brain works. And honestly, like now that I've gone through it, I always reflect on where, like what panic attacks I've had. And it's taught me a lot about myself and like how I respond now to stress. So that's very interesting. Well,
1: What's so exciting and and what my the so the newest book this 10 fixes for the broken brain. First of all, I just want to say broken is being used as a metaphor. So I'm using it with the idea that bullying and abuse. If you look on a brain scan, they really do damage to our brains. You can see it. They they wither parts of our brains like the corpus callosum, they shrivel up parts of our brains like the hippocampus, they kill neurons, they stop the growth of new brain cells. It does. It reduces gray matter. Like It's really, really serious. It does terrible stuff to your brain. So that's the bad news. The really good news of 10 fixes for the broken brain is the focus on fixes. So there's 10 different I talk about the methods that we learn about from all these brilliant psychologists and psychiatrists and neuroscientists, all these things that we can do with our brains. So if in fact you're sitting and listening to the show saying, whoa, um, you know, I've had all these bad things happen to me. What am I going to do? My brain's gotten hurt. That's really only a, a fraction of the story. The truth of it is you have within your brain the most amazing ability to change it, to heal it, and to fix it. And the best thing to do, of course, is to work with someone like a professional, a mental health counselor is the best, you know, a psychologist or something, that's the best. If you can't do that though, if you can't afford it, if it's not possible, working with a buddy, like a really close friend or a parent or sibling, that's really important too. Just don't go it alone. But there are very clear fixes and there, it's not hard. It doesn't cost anything, but it's amazing in the research, what we can do to heal our own brains. Wow. So what can we do? Let's well, talk about that. Mute <laughs> ask. Um, so uh, for, this is a really good one for you because you're an athlete. One of the best things we can do for our brains to not only reduce our stress, which is hard in the 21st century, especially think COVID. We're all under such extreme stress right now. So, what do we need to do? We've got to get rid of our stress. How do we do it? One of the best remedies for stress, and it even heals stress from the past, is exercise. And if you can combine exercise with strategic thinking, like is required in a sport, you're doing the most wondrous things to your brain. It's unbelievably good for you. So if you do anything like Tai Chi or you're doing yoga or you're especially aerobic exercise, you're playing a sport, you really are doing amazing work with your brain. You can go for a jog, you can skip, whatever it is that you do, dance. I mean, do anything that's gonna allow you to get your heartbeat up. And a quick reminder to yourself is, everything that's good for your heart, like when your heart gets going, is really good for your brain. So one of the one of the if you want to read about this if there's people out there that would really like to do a deep dive into this and find out the detailed information the best person is Dr. John it's Ratey it's R A T E Y he's written a book called Spark and it's all about the revolutionary impact on the brain of exercise it's a brilliant book mm-hmm. so exercise is one of the big ones um, of course we have to think our brains are living breathing like organic things they need lots of sleep especially for adolescents so do the very best you can to get in your sort of eight nine hours of night up until the age of 24 then you can coast on less sleep but it honestly is it's a game changer for the health of your brain just to sleep when you go to sleep your brain works double time to process and work on integrating things and organize your memories and it's a really important time Food, of course, super important to eat healthy food. Um, You know, the more you can be getting the omega-3s, the more you can eat protein. The only protein, if you're a vegan, only only thing uh, other than meat and eggs and cheese that has protein, like what your brain needs is quinoa. So you need to eat quinoa whether you like it or not. You have to if you're a vegan because there's certain amino acids that you can only get from quinoa and then... Cheese and eggs and meat and so on. So, yeah, like eating really healthily for your brain, lots of exercise. And then, two other ones one is mindfulness. And mindfulness, you know, I used to have the misconception that it had, you know, you had to sit cross legged and you had to like put on some incense and like, you know, (laughs) some guided visualizations. And I was really, really bad at it. I was like, I'm a super active person. So, sitting still. second i sat still my brain went crazy and it wouldn't concentrate and it wouldn't listen and it was just it was embarrassing i was listening to my brain going what is wrong with you Mm -hmm. and so um what i've learned and again if people want a book to do a deep dive into this the research is fascinating if you want to take a look at doing mindfulness while you're doing an activity so while you're knitting or while you're coloring you're coloring in kind of an abstract drawing or you're doing the dishes or you're going for a walk in nature really you can tap into the mindfulness healing properties and the stress reduction and the brain health as long as you're doing it in a particular way which is mainly just being very purposeful like you're not just letting your mind wander randomly you're being very mindful very purposeful you're in the present and you're very much paying attention to mind and brain and body and how they basically so that's the other and then the final one that's so incredibly influential for healing our brains and working positively with our brains is exactly that positive psychology and um i'll just end on um dr sean Aker says that you know we've all been fed kind of an untruth which is that once we're successful then we're going to be happy so we all work so hard, especially young people. You know, They're always like, once I finish school and university, college, I'm gonna be happy. Oh, once I get my first job, then I'm gonna be happy. Once I pay for a house, then I'm gonna be really happy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's this receding horizon and you, you never are happy. And you're like, why am I not happy and fulfilled? It's because you believe that success is the key to happiness. And tons of neuroscientific research shows and psychological research shows that's not true. It's the opposite. The second you choose happiness, success follows.
0: Wow, that's really powerful. That's such good advice. And I think, I think it's very important that people know the right things that will help heal your brain. And especially with positive like psychology, do you mean like positive self-talk? Can you expand a little bit more on that?
1: Yeah. Um, So Dr. Aker has seven different principles. He calls it the happiness advantage and he really does a lot of talking to the corporate world, but I'm trying as much as I can. I'm really interested in young people and helping young people. And I really like to connect with them because I I feel like they get the short end of the stick to a certain degree because, you know, you're expected to learn so much. And yeah, I, I find that adults are so negative sometimes, you know, this, the discussion around the millennials just irks me so much because it's, it's just not true. And anyway, so Dr. Sean akery has got these seven principles and he talks about mindset and the really, like the biggest takeaway from these, these approaches is, and it, he draws on tons and tons and tons of research. So the neuroscientific research is really interesting in terms of if your mindset is positive. So if you believe in yourself, if you believe that you can achieve your dreams, then you start to work hard. You know, if you're an athlete that's ignored, you're just not going to work hard because you're, you're kind of socially ostracized, you're abandoned, like you're, you, yeah. you're not motivated. You're just like sitting on the bench. There's no motivation to that. If you're an athlete that's verbally humiliated, once again, your motivation is rock bottom because you're so scared you're going to make a mistake that you don't yeah. want to say anything. You're just like, you're kind of handicapped in that, in that mindset. Well, if you had coaches who really encouraged you and said to you, you know what? It's up to you. It's up to you and how much work you put in and it's up to me and how effectively I coach you. That combination is dynamite. And I'm going to do everything in my power to tailor my coaching just to you because you're going to need empathic coaching that's different from someone else. There might be an athlete on the bench that really revs up and gets excited when I, I yell at them, go, go, go. Whereas you might be an introvert, you might be an auditorily sensitive person. And if I yell that at you, you're just going to shut down. Well, it's the coach's job to figure out every single athlete, what's the right way to work with them and, and be really uh, conscious of them and sensitive to them and then tailor your approach. That's where you get the best out of these diverse players with these different brains and different bodies and so on and so forth, different personalities, really. So um, yeah, positive psychology is all about mindset. and. Um, another really interesting book for your listeners, if they're interested in knowing more about this, is um, this idea that we that talent is not parceled out at birth. So let's pretend mm-hmm. you have some of the people on your team or friends that you have, and you might be like, oh, so-and-so is so talented. You never mm-hmm. want to catch yourself saying that because it's not true. Mm-hmm. All of us have the potential to maximize our pot- our potential or our talent um, and Dr. Daniel Coyle has gone out and done all this research to see how is it that certain coaches, for example, get incredible talent and they produce talent hotbeds, not just one year, but year after year after year. How do they do it? What is the trick and the, what's the magic to this? He's not actually a doctor. He's a journalist. No. And he said um, what he figures out is by studying all these people in the world, and all these different coaches, it's three things. The first thing he calls ignition. And ignition is when you believe in yourself. So he talks about Roger Bannister who ran the four minute mile. And prior to Roger Bannister, no one could run it. No one could do it. It was impossible. Like you knew it was impossible. I knew it was impossible. So we just didn't even really give it our all because why would we, it's impossible. As soon as Bannister did it, within something like two weeks, there were seven or more people who ran the four minute mile. They believed it was possible. And so next thing you know, they could do it. So the first thing is you have to believe that it's possible for you to achieve whatever it is that you want. The second that happens, the second the light goes on, the second you say, I can do that, then you're going to start to commit to deep practice. And deep practice is making mistakes over and over and over and over again. That's how the brain learns. The brain learns by making mistakes. So you never want to feel bad when you make mistakes. You just want to be like, huh, how can I correct that? What did I do wrong? Why didn't that work? I need to try again. The only way we get good at anything is by trying over and over and over again and giving it our time and energy. And then the third factor is the coach. You need an empathic coach who has a lot of wisdom and a lot of knowledge, but they meet you on your level. They look deeply into your eyes and they figure out what is it about you? What what can they do to help you reach your goal? And when you get one of those golden coaches combined with ignition and deep practice, then you got talent all over the place.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's so powerful. And the way you described that, it shows, I'm learning this in entrepreneurship right now, but it shows the difference between a fixed and growth mindset. And it shows how important that is just everywhere, even not even in sports, but in the workplace as well.
1: Well, everything that you do in sports is exactly the same as what you do in the workplace. You know, you have a coach. Oh, no, you have a manager. You have a sport team. Oh, no, you have a corporate team. You have, you know, it just goes on like that. It's all the same, right? That's why sports, when you when you learn with great coaching and you have a fabulous team, sports is one of the best ways to become proficient at workplace dynamics because- you know if you're an athlete you've learned how to do a lot of things that other people don't get that opportunity to explore yeah. but um yeah growth mindset and fixed mindset goes back to um something that you and i were talking about and it, it's sometimes i just try and give a visual or help people understand um by thinking about it in more organic terms so um fixed and growth mindset is dr carol dweck's work she has tons of research that backs it up and she's learned that exactly students for example at school who believe that their success hinges not on their their intelligence. They don't believe that they're gonna do well because they're smart. In fact, that's gonna hold them back. What they do believe is the more work they put in, the more energy, more effort, and more time, the more successful they'll be. That's growth mindset. And neuroscientists think of these that image as a tree that's growing and your your neurons are very much your brain cells your neurons are very much like tree-like beans. they have dendrites mm-hmm. or branches that grow they have axons which are like roots that go through your body and so if you have a cell and it's blossoming which is what happens during adolescence up until the age of 24 Young people from 13 to 24 have the most unbelievable blossoming happening in their brains. So their brains are opening up to, you could be anyone, you could do anything. And the job of the young person is to also be the arborist, the person who takes care of the tree or the brain cells, and that, that person can prune. And when you're pruning pruning a tree out in the garden, what you're trying to do is strengthen the neural networks or strengthen the tree branches that you want to be strong, that you want to reach the sun and, and get enough water and and have all their leaves come out. But you wanna also cut away deadwood or branches that are no longer really serving the tree. So that's a really great way to think about negative habits. So if you have limiting beliefs, if you've been abused and you think it's true that you're mentally weak, that's, a, that's dead wood, you need to prune that. You gotta get rid of that neural network. It's not gonna serve you, it's not it's not accurate, it's not helpful, get rid of it. So if you can, that's a guided meditation or a mindfulness moment where you can just close your eyes and envision how gorgeous your brain is as, as it's blossoming and as the leaves are unfurling and it's in a growth mindset. And then say to yourself, do I want it just to freeze and become frigid and locked in and never grow again? I'm only what, 22? that would be fixed mindset. And none of us want to be there. And it's not true to how our brains are. They can change. We have neuroplasticity up until the day we die. We can change our brains and our brain architecture and how our brains function. Wow.
0: So what's the best thing that, like, I know you work with a lot of adolescents. So what do you say, like, you need to
1: do this right now about the brain? Well, with adolescents, what I really think is critical is that they get information. So Mm -hmm. there has been a huge amount of work done recently, like in the last, I don't know, five, 10 years on adolescent brains, because the neuroscientists and the psychologists and the psychiatrists, they suddenly realized, whoa, the adolescent brain is a totally different thing than the child brain and the adult brain. It's different. And what they realized is the adolescent brain... And again, let's go back to we're in the Serengeti and we live in a cave and we've got a little campfire. Um, So that's where the brain's at when it comes to adolescence. And so what it's doing is it's saying to you, hey, you know, it's time for you to leave the family cave. You got to get out there and you've got to make a life for yourself. You've got to find other people in other caves who are going to be your new tribe. You can't stay with your family forever. Come on, you got to get out there. So what does the brain do? It makes you full of risk taking. So all of a sudden in your adolescent years, you're like, whoa, I'm driving the car. I think I'm going to drive 100 instead of the speed limit. Yeah. And people are like, that crazy teenager, they're a bad person. They should have you know, not done that. That's so dangerous. You can't help it. <coughs> you can't help the fact that your brain is programmed to behave that way. Mm-hmm. And so that's one thing. You have a risk taking brain up until the age of 24. I'm just going to have a sip of water. No, you're fine. <laughs> I'm clearly talking too much <laughs> Definitely talking too much um, so you have a risk-taking brain you also have a reward-seeking brain so if you're gonna get a hit of dopamine by answering a text even though you're supposed to be concentrating or listening to an important conversation or studying for something you or driving your car it's so hard for your brain to resist that text That little thing is so hard for you not to pick up your phone because your brain so badly wants the reward. And this is the young person's brain um, priming it to have the courage to leave the cave. Because if you go around an unknown corner out on the Serengeti past a tree you've never seen, you're going to get the reward of finding new people, having adventures, all these things. So you really have to manage that when you're young because it can lead you into a lot of danger. And how do young people die? they die way higher levels than adults do and then children do. It's a very dangerous time of life and we don't teach young people how to manage their brains. We don't teach them that, you know, use your exercise, get enough sleep, eat healthily, make sure you do mindfulness. These are the things mm-hmm. will, that will calm your brain down and keep you safe. We don't tell mm-hmm. them that. And so you've got risk taking, you've got reward seeking and you've got peer influence. That's not pure pressure. The neuroscientific research has shown that. So, if we use the car for the example, it shows in the research that if I, as an old person, I'm driving along, if you put another person in the car with me, I don't change my driving at all. I don't, it just makes no dent on me, no, nothing.
0: Mm-hmm. But if
1: you are driving up until the age of 24, 25, every single person that is added into the car with you is going to make you drive more recklessly. You're starting to try and impress them, you're trying to show them that you're. You're cool and courageous and and you don't even know why you're doing it. And it's your brain. It's your brain development. So I think it's really like with adolescence, I believe, first of all, the adolescent brain is the most incredible thing. It learns way faster than adult brains. It's way more creative and it's way more innovative. It can solve problems like adult brains can't. That's why brilliant discoveries and innovations often happen before people are 25, 26. It happens during adolescence. But in the work world we don't bring adolescents to the the table. We don't have them sitting on our boards. We don't have them at the big executive meeting, um, brainstorming with all the old people. And you guys have the great brains. You've got the brilliant ideas. And so that's what I'd like to see switch in the workplace. At the same time as we adults, we have to be the prefrontal cortex for you, which is the last part of the brain to develop. And it's what's missing in young people. So I might say to you, Kara, what were you thinking? And you'd be like, uh, I wasn't thinking. And both of them would be like, of course, adolescent brain at work. Because the prefrontal cortex is the part of your brain that looks to the future. It yeah. weighs pros and cons. It thinks about consequences. It says, you know, Kara, if you drive 100, that's really dangerous. You could hurt somebody. You could hurt yourself. You really shouldn't do that. Let's look to the future together. Pros and cons. Yeah, it's super fun. You're getting a lot of, you know, a rush from, you know, being, breaking the rules and the things that adolescent brains encourage you to do. But the bottom line is not safe. That part of your brain is not mature until 24, 25. So if adolescents reach out to the adults in their lives and say, help me out, create frameworks for me, remind me, tell me over and over again, get me to be mindful for a second and think when I turn the ignition, when I go to that job on the first day, when I do any of those things, I've got to really recognize I'm working with a bit of a, a challenge in my adolescent brain it's great but it's also challenging
0: that's very interesting i feel like we don't think about that and we don't think about the differences i feel like when adults look at kids they're just like oh they're just kids they don't know
1: but our brains are just wired differently so we respond in different ways that's exactly right the neuroscientists always describe the adolescent brain as they use this car metaphor all the time all these different neuroscientists they say the adolescent brain is like a race car with a super fast gas pedal like it can go from 0 to 60 in terms of emotions or reactions or behaviors but it has the brakes of a bicycle and that's the prefrontal <laughs> cortex not yeah. it, the braking system is not mature yet so you guys have this really tricky vehicle to, to to work with and that's why adults have to show up for you so much yeah wow yeah. that's very interesting
0: that's fascinating Wow. I'm trying to think of the next question. I love where this has taken, where this conversation has taken it because I wanted to touch on um, coaching, but I also wanted to touch on mental health because I feel like it's so important, especially during COVID because, I mean, people are kind of forced to realize the truths of anxiety and depression when things aren't going well. Can you touch on that?
1: Yeah, I think that, so one of the things I love to do is, you know, people talk about the stigma of mental health and, you know, we're not allowed to talk about it. It's not, it's not okay to feel depressed and, you know, we feel embarrassed or whatever. You got to switch that thinking and start talking about, I think anyways, in my opinion, we need to start talking about brain health because when you feel anxious, when you feel depressed, when you feel traumatized, it's because there's something going on in your brain. Like your brain is this fabulous part of you, but You know, if you twisted your ankle or your knee or your shoulder, we'd rush you right into rehab and you'd expect to work really hard to get your shoulder, your knee, you'd do exercises, you'd do all these things and you certainly wouldn't be embarrassed. You wouldn't be like, oh, guys, there's nothing wrong with me. No, I'm going to stay home tonight. And you're trying to cover up the fact that you twisted your ankle. Like that just wouldn't happen, right? So why do we do that with our brains? It's like, hey, I'm suffering from depression. It's due to whatever factors. And I got a, I'm in the midst of rehab, and I'm working on it, and yeah, so I can't go out tonight, you know? Yeah. Why are we embarrassed? Yeah. So that would be thing number one. Mm-hmm. Um, with COVID, I, I totally agree with you. People have come up against what it might feel like to find it hard to get out of the house, or get out of bed, or what it feels like to feel a lot of powerlessness and fear, which mm-hmm. can happen to, you know, people that are suffering mental health or brain health issues, you know, that's what's happening. But and and this goes back to Dr. Sean Aker's work again, he talks about social investment. And that's one of the best things we can do for ourselves when we're suffering from a mental health or brain health situation. You have a really strong impulse to kind of close the doors and pull down the blinds and go it alone and get better. But the research shows you're way less likely to get better. If you do that, the more you outreach, the more you connect, the more you, you know, play your card gamer monopoly, you know, online, do it on zoom, you know? Yeah. Like the more you talk to your friends, use zoom as a time to say, you know, yes, we're all tired of talking on the screen. It's not the same as being in the, in the room with someone. And that's because your brain's not getting a lot of the messaging that it depends on to interpret situations. So use it as an exercise to say, I'm going to, this particular zoom call, I'm going to pay attention to the person's eye color. Well, that's really making you look empathically into someone's eyes and notice them and see them. Or say to yourself, I'm gonna listen with empathy. Instead of jumping in or interrupting or putting in a joke or some kind of reaction, I'm just going to listen. And then I'm gonna repeat back to the person and say, I think what I hear you saying is. So that you're teaching yourself the art of truly listening, truly looking, and you know watch posture watch facial expression and see if even through the interface of zoom you can heighten your connection and your empathy because those are sought after talk about sought after things on on sports teams they certainly are in the workplace as well
0: wow that's really good and i think me personally my true healing came from when i did a backpacking trip where i was with a group my freshman year of college and We were taking a course together where we couldn't leave and I had a panic attack every day at 3 p.m. It was just my anxiety stress response to all of the exercise we were doing because we were portaging and stuff. And so my friends would like check their watches and be like, oh, it's 3 p.m. Are you okay? And it was so sweet and it helped me open up to people and actually talk about it. And I think that's so vital to just growing and healing from those situations.
1: Well, the research in the workplace is when there's crisis or failure. Um, uh, Sean Aker calls it, um, he talks about harnessing downward falls. And he called, oh, this is the phrase. I was trying to remember. What's the phrase he uses? Because it's really lovely. He talks about falling up. So instead of thinking about, oh, I fell down, I had a panic attack, I embarrassed myself, he, he, like, you just did it. You reversed it and said, whoa, I had this incredible experience, this healing experience. I socially invested and I discovered there's a community out there of caring people that yeah. were anticipating that I might struggle and they wanted to be there for me. What a discovery. That, that is falling up. That's a perfect example. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. It goes back to what you said before about growth mindset, because we can suffer from PTSD. We can have post-traumatic stress disorder, which when you say three o'clock, personally for me, I go, oh, just when you go to practice, the school day ends, you've got fabulous teachers. Three o'clock was when you go to practice.
0: Oh my God. I didn't even think of that. Oh my God. I've chilled. Oh my gosh. Okay. You know so much about my brain that I don't even know. And you're just like repeating it back to me. And I'm like, oh my <laughs> God. Oh my God.
1: That's crazy. But then here's how much you know, because you already said it yourself. You said, I believe I'm learning in my entrepreneur class about growth mindset. But you yourself, you've already healed yourself because instead of suffering post-traumatic stress disorder, you've got post-traumatic growth. You took it as a growth opportunity. You fell up and discovered that there's incredible community positivity and love. If you just open your heart up and tell the truth and share what's going on, you bring that to your own coaching. You're not bringing in negativity. You're not repeating this destructive experience. Absolutely not. You took growth mindset right to your players and you say, you can be whoever you want to be and I'm going to be here and support you every step of the way. I see you.
0: Yeah, that's so powerful. Oh my gosh.
1: Wow, it's like you're kind of connecting the
0: dots that I've tried to connect myself, and it's just helping so much. That's so funny. But that's it's just so good.
1: It's because I'm so old. Old people <laughs> can connect the dots. For young people, that's what our job is. That's what we're yeah. supposed to do. Yeah, that's amazing.
0: Oh, I had a question, but then it just slipped my mind. We're running low on time too, so I don't want to keep you for too long. Oh, actually, my question is about the workplace. So, as a person who's about to enter the workforce I'm a junior in college so I have two years around but what is your best advice when I'm looking for both a positive workplace culture and
1: just a positive space for my mental health in the workplace um I think so one of the things I did a lot of research into why so in Canada for example and it's true in the U.S. as well what happens is university students graduate and then they don't Get jobs and they panic. Mm-hmm. And so they end up going into underemployment. And underemployment is when, so you finish your college degree, and the next thing you know, you're waitressing for the next two to five years. Or you finish your college degree and you're doing administrative work that has nothing to do with the training, or you work in retail, or all these different things. Mm-hmm. And so the question that had, was given to me, and I was asked to develop curriculum, was why are so many young people going into underemployment? So the first thing I figured out, and it has to do with everything that you and I talked about, is. When you're at school you belong to the academic community and you or you belong to the sport community you belong like you have your tribe and then when you're in the workplace just as you're you just articulated you said oh i want to find a workplace that's going to foster my mental health i want it to be a place where i can grow i can use growth mindset i can totally harness my talent and just be fulfill my potential i don't i don't want to don't want to be held back yeah. but notice that we've jumped over the gap and the gap is the real game changer That's when you're in between the two caves. Cave number one is I belong to the academic community all my life. I know it inside out. I know what to do. I know when I've got a teacher, a professor, I know that I know my job. Like I know who I am, what I'm doing, and I've got my tribe. Then you walk out of that cave. And for the first time in your life, and arguably one of the only times in your life, you are by yourself. And it's like, you have to find a job alone. There's no one with you. You don't belong to a community. So your brain totally freaks out and it starts to panic and it starts to do anything in its power to get you into any cave that it can find, including waitressing or retail or administration. So then all of this work you've done in college to myelinate your neural networks for problem solving and strategic thinking and, you know, social emotional intelligence and innovation. All mm-hmm. those myelinated neural networks and myelination just simply means that they're fast and efficient. They've got an insulator on them. They're really, they, you've used them a ton. So they're powerful. Okay. All of a sudden you're going to reduce that by doing mindless tasks that no longer require any of those things. So it's really counterproductive. So the first thing I would say to young people is when you're on the job market, you create a community with you of your buddies, all of you are looking for work and you meet, Every single day or every second day, you talk together. You strategize together. You do mock interviews together. You look at each other's resumes. Like, do not go it alone. If it, maybe you do it with your family or whatever, just make sure you do it. You know, people talk a ton about networking. Use networking that way. Like, get get the mentors in your jobs and in in your community. Ask them to meet you for coffee. I know it's scary, but old people in general usually love to help young people. Yeah. I love to talk about all the things that they know from their experience. So just keep connected. Do not go it alone. Mm-hmm. And then when you're going to look for a workplace, always at the end of interviews, I used to find this would completely throw me off because I would prepare so much what I wanted to say about how I was going to contribute. I would forget to ask them, how are you going to contribute? And they would say at the end of the interview, oh, do you have any questions? And I'd be like, <gasps> I don't have any questions. Yeah, no. That's and I'd the go, hardest part. So you, I mean, wouldn't you love a young person saying to you, yeah, I have a bunch of questions about your workplace culture. I'm really interested in, um, in, in becoming, um, I believe a lot in social emotional energy and what it brings to a workplace. And I know for myself, I flourish on teams that are positive. And I'm just wondering if you could talk to me a bit about your value system and your workplace culture, and then just get kind a of read from them in terms of how they react. And also like, I know it's really hard to do. And this is a great time to like kind of phone your parents up and say, give me six months, like help me out. I'm going to really need your support while I navigate this, but treat the, the job like an a negotiation, you know, come to the table saying, I've got a lot to offer. I'm, I'm young, I'm energized. I'm smart. I've been working hard. I've got all this, that I've got this incredible lived experience. I'm going to bring it to you, but you need to show up for me too. And let's see what this is going to look like. So, and then the other thing too, I've I've dealt with some young people who've gotten into workplace situations that are highly, highly toxic. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, don't try and stick it out don't try and change it you need to be uh, document everything really take care of yourself don't don't think it's gonna go away it's usually pretty entrenched by the time you're a new hire like you look at all the hashtag me too business those were new hires those young women and they got brutalized by a system that was very entrenched so just you know keep your wits about you and really take good care of yourself there's nothing more important than your brain health and your body health combined
0: mm-hmm. that's really good advice oh
1: my gosh you just provide all the advice.
0: You pretty much just Wow. Thank you so much. I feel like whenever I talk to you, you always do
1: that though. And I'm very grateful
0: for well, all the advice you've given.
1: It's totally my pleasure. It's, it's yeah. my, it's what I love to work on. There's nothing that makes me happier than sort of being in a teaching place and a supportive yeah. club. So you just gave me an opportunity to, uh to share with you some of the things that I've been working on. And I'm, I'm so thankful that it's interesting to you.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. Just the brain and everything. Everything that you've mentioned is fascinating. And I'm going to try to get more sleep and work on it because all of the advice you've given is stuff that I can easily change. And I know it'll have a huge effect on my brain. So it's really good.
1: Definitely. It, it definitely yeah. will. And it's it's not hard. Like yeah. you say. you just have to be conscious of it and, and carve it out in terms of your daily patterns. And and. There's another great book called Atomic Habits. So if somebody's listened to this and they're like, oh no, I can never make change. James Clear has this brilliant book. So Atomic Habits, is this idea of you can make t- really small changes every day. So I'm going to sleep for 10 more minutes. I'm going to go to bed 10 minutes early. And if I can't fall asleep, I'm going to just be mindful of that time and just let myself, you know. And mm-hmm. the next thing you know, you build that up to an hour extra sleep every day. And then look at how it changes yeah. your life because an atomic tiny change can have a really big impact on your life.
0: That's really good advice. Yeah.
1: Wow. Okay. I need to download all of these books or buy
0: all of these books. That's amazing. That's great. So my final question, I ask everyone on my show and I started out my show as a travel podcast because I was about to study abroad. So it doesn't really apply to my guests now because I'm kind of branching out of travel, but if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you not travel to?
1: Okay, well, I'm going to say something potentially controversial. Are you going to say America? No, (laughs) I wasn't going to say that. But I I was going to say something political. Okay. So my political response to that is I don't want to travel to places in the world. And this might leave me with not very many places right now where people's civil rights are not being respected. So I don't want to go to a place, a country that has huge civil rights issues. You know, I don't want to go to a place where I can, you know, have a lovely time on holiday without looking at certain things that are really kind of heartbreaking, kind of hard. I'm excited to go to countries right now that are being you know, like the places that leap out for me is, you know, some of the Scandinavian countries. I think to myself, oh, Finland is so good with what they do with education. I want to yes. go there. And I think Iceland is so amazing with their music scene. Like they, Aww. they love music and they support it and yes. they teach children music. Can I go there? Or isn't sweet and interesting they have this more socialist idea of how we might work together in our you know they're they're so democratic like is that a place yeah. to go and see so i sort of feel oh. i feel and again it's an age thing i think i don't want to go to beautiful places i don't want to go to i mean god knows I, I mean when you said america it makes me laugh because as a canadian all we ever do is dream of like we love to go to like san francisco and new york yeah <laughs> oh my gosh like, Who doesn't love America at the same time as I'm just feeling strongly right now as as an old lady that I just want to see places and and go to places and connect with people that are that are trying to say, you know what, we can't keep being in the bullying and abuse paradigm. Uh Uh-uh, It's not working. We got to do something new. I'm excited by that. I love how you shifted
0: my question into applying to your studies and your research. I think that's so good. And I, I want to go to Scandinavian countries, too. I completely agree. I like the Huga idea. You read on Huga. I love no. that. It's it's Norway, I think. No, Norway is a different one. I can't. I think it's Sweden. But they have, like, the idea of comfort and surrounding yourself with comfy things and just being happy and how it leads to happiness. So that might be something you should look into because it's a
1: really <laughs> interesting thing. That sounds, that sounds right up my alley. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. And Nor- Nor- I think Norway has really good topics on like mental stamina and working hard through difficult challenges. So you might want to actually research Scandinavian countries for your
1: neuroscience. Um, I'm all over it. Here's yeah. another, I'm going to, I know you have to go and this is just, oh, every, you're fine. every single thing that you say makes me want to say something else. So just oh. as I promise is my last little thing that <laughs> the, the neuroscientists study these people called blue zone people. And blue zone people live in different parts of the earth, and I'm pretty sure Scandinavia is one of them. Um, Japan is another. There's a place in the US, oh, where is it? It's like uh, maybe Arizona, but blue zones live in different parts of the world, and they are people who live past the age of 100 with really healthy bodies and really healthy brains. And so uh-huh. they that, and so they studied them. They're like, how is it possible that these people don't get diseases? How is it possible that they don't get dementia? Like why are their brains so healthy and their bodies so healthy? And they found out this sort of sequence of things that show up in all these different people, whether it's in America or Japan or wherever. And blue zones have these things. One thing is they have lots of social investment. They belong to a, a really caring community. Mm -hmm. they have purpose like they believe that what they're doing is important it has meaning and they're connected to it they um eat a mediterranean diet and they're physically fit in small ways like they they do things like they pick olives up in mountainsides and they fish and they're always like out and moving and in nature and then the final one i think is really particularly lovely they have spirituality. So they believe in a higher power. And obviously that's important to our brains. So, oh. you know, I just think like, Oh, how do, where do we want to travel? We should all be traveling to the blue zones and like sit with those elders and learn, yeah. how to, like how to love ourselves and care for our brains and bodies.
0: Wow.
1: That's really good. I need to
0: research that. That's very interesting. Wow. Cool. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for being on my show. I feel like I've learned so much about myself and how to grow my brain, make it make my tree pruned and healthy. I'm so excited to take all of the wonderful nuggets of wisdom you've given me and implement them in my life. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Have a lovely evening and a really great sleep, Kara.
0: Thank you. You too. (laughs) Bye.